So greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series online edition. Uh, my name is Anthony Wong, program coordinator for the Institute. I'd like to welcome all of you uh, on this uh, Friday evening and happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month to all. Uh, we're honored to have with us a professor and now Dr. Elizabeth Hannah Rubio <laughs> to present on Black Asian solidarities and the impasses of how to anti-racism based on a recent article in the Journal of the, uh, for the Anthropology of North America. Um, Professor Rubio has previously presented at the Institute back in fall 2018 on the topic of contentious solidarities, navigating racialization and alliance building in Korean American immigrant rights work. Uh, the video for that talk is available on our website and you can watch it after this presentation. Elizabeth Hannah Rubio received her PhD uh, in cultural anthropology from the University of California, Irvine, and will continue on as a chancellor's postdoctoral fellow at UCLA's Asian American Studies Department. Building on her background as a community organizer, uh, Dr. Rubio uh, writes about the fraught politics of multiracial coalition building in immigrant justice spaces and the complexities of thinking migrant justice through an abolitionist lens. Uh, her current project explores these themes through four years of ethnographic research with undocumented Korean American organizers in Southern California, Washington DC and Chicago. You can find her work pub published in Amerasia Journal, the Journal for the Anthropology of uh, North America, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Cultural Anthropology, Field Sites and other mediums. Uh, in addition, Professor Rubio was a co-guest editor for the Institute's academic journal, CUNY Forum Volume 7, which explored what it means to be Asian American and living under the threat of immigration-related consequences, uh, such as deportation. Uh, please welcome Professor Rubio. Thank you so much to Anthony um, and to Ari for having me again. I uh, My last talk was in 2018, so quite a bit ago. Um, and I'm just happy to be back uh, with you all, even though it's in this weird um, digital space. So um, what I want to present today, as Anthony uh, said, um, draws from a, a longer article I recently published, and we are going to email that out to you um, at the end, um, I, I think, to attendees. Um, and so I decided to write this article um, Oh, I am also going to be sharing my screen because I do have some visuals for you all. I decided to write this article entitled Black Asian Solidarities and the Impasses of How to Anti-Racisms because of a series of challenges I kept seeing arise um, in the Asian American and racial justice spaces that I've been organizing in um, for the past 10 years or so. And then also during this kind of concentrated five years of ethnographic work. Um, and I kept seeing these same kind of set of challenges pop up in the context of navigating the kind of fraught space of coalition building with Black organizers. Um, but these were things that really started to be heightened in the summer of 2020, as we know, you know, attacks against Asian Americans um, and public attention to them kind of coincided with COVID-19's uh, laying bare of the racialized inequities that structure the U.S., um, and then, of course, the summer of uprisings in defense of Black life. Um, so I, the article, the larger article, kind of interrogates the relationship between what I call how-to anti-racisms, which I'll explain what that is in a second, um, and multiracial solidarity building, again, particularly at sites of Black Asian American racial justice work. And so by how to anti-racisms, I refer to a mode of multiracial justice struggle 
that focuses on challenging how racism manifests in interpersonal reactions um, and subsequent learning or unlearning of certain behaviors and utterances. And so I don't mean to suggest that that work is necessarily um, in opposition to, but often marginalizes um, kind of forms of coalition that would challenge the material and ideological structures animating those behaviors that folks are trying to unlearn or learn. And so my contention with that way of thinking about anti-racism is that it individualizes and presents as kind of immediately resolvable issues and relationships that may not entirely be resolvable, but yet can require these kind of vexed processes of collective struggle. And so it makes it seem like one, by mere virtue of individual volunteerism, um, can simply learn or learn their, unlearn their way out of structural racism, and also universalizes responsive responses to conflictive and nuanced multiracial encounters, um, kind of into this template. And so what I want what I want to show is how these con these tendencies consolidate into these repertoires within multiracial coalition building spaces that provides shortcuts around transformative organizing work. And so as an anthropologist, my kind of main form, the way that I you know, collect data is through what's called ethnography. So that means I am very much like embedded in people's lives and interviewing them several times throughout several years. I'm kind of participating directly in the spaces um, that they're operating in. So all of my reflections come from that kind of prolonged um, interaction. And there are kind of two ethnographic sites that I want to take you through um, in this talk, concentrating more on the second. So the first is kind of obviously during the pandemic, I could not physically be in spaces with people. So I did a virtual ethnography of what um, was really kind of a, a deluge of Black Asian solidarity panels that were online panels that were popping up at the beginning of the pandemic, again, for the reasons that I listed, I listed the confluence of these anti-Asian attacks, um, the you know murder of George Floyd, um, et cetera, really kind of uh, uh, motivated folks to reinvigorate this very long history of um, Black Asian uh, solidarity and coalition work, which the history of which I, I don't have time to get into here, but if folks wanna talk a little bit more about that in the q and I'd love to do that as well. Um, but also of course, conflict um, between Black and Asian Americans. Um, and then the second place I want to take you to is um, kind of my, my, again, ethnographic work with a group of uh, young uh, Asian American and Latino organizers in uh, Southern California, where I live in Orange County, California, um, in the context of a youth of color multiracial organizing school, um, and kind of use the process that unfolded there to kind of problematize these themes that I'm talking about. So that's kind of the overview and uh, we will get into kind of the meat now. So you kind of probably became familiar with the genre of how-to anti-racism that I'm talking about um, in this past summer of uprisings in defense of black life. Um, so in the wake of Ahmaud Arbery, um, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, George Floyd, and Elijah McLean's murders, um, people invested in examining their internalized white supremacy or anti-Blackness. You know, folks probably remember this, flocked to online bookstores to purchase texts that promised them to teach them how to be anti-racist or how to be less stupid about race. Um, if you read, this book is, is uh, anti-racist by Jewel and Durand, you could apparently in just 20 lessons as the book 
um, subtitle promises, train yourself on how to, quote, wake up, take action, and do the work. And then, of course, according to Robin D'Andolo's bestseller, White Fragility, you can, quote, step outside of the dominant paradigm and move into a transformed paradigm if, with openness and humility, you examine your own assumptions and, quote, break with the apathy of whiteness and demonstrate that you care enough to put in the effort, end quote. So these um, readings prompted non-Black folks to ask themselves questions um, like, you know, am I supposed to say Black or Black and Brown or people of color? What should I be reading? Am I supposed to like Hamilton? Am I being Black, anti-Black right now? Or what about now? And so these are important questions, but what I want to argue is that they're not necessarily the ones that most urgently need asking. So in this um, really great article that I that I encourage folks to check out um, in the Boston Review of Books by um, theorist Melissa Prukashart, Prukashart, excuse me, she located these books within a longer tradition of the literature of racial liberalism, or to put it in her words more directly, within the quote long tradition of white people thinking that they could read their way out of trouble. And so this tradition really reaches back to the post-World War II period when the new left and anti-colonial movements and uh, civil rights and black power movements in the US really kind of destabilized the uh, legitimacy of what at that point was kind of a, um, a, a, a mode of de jure exclusion um, that kind of uh, sustained racial hegemony in the U.S., right? So post-1965, we know that ostensibly the U.S. goes through kind of a racial liberalization of its laws. Um, so, you know, U.S. racial hegemony at that point primarily goes from being a de jure exclusion to one predicated on illusions of post-racialism and colorblindness. And so this mid-century reorganization of the state into successive kind of race liberal orders was accompanied by the rise of a literary genre oriented towards re restoring the rational structuring of racial hegemony, this time though, through a process of white liberal catharsis. So put differently, the literature of racial liberalism has always kind of swooped in during these moments of racialized confusion, like the one we saw um, last summer and throughout this year. It's kind of always swooped into, um, as Nikhil Paul Singh has put it, quote, cast racial equality as the telos of American nationhood. It restores a sense that racial injustice um, is kind of a rational aber aberrance that one can, um, just if they follow the right steps, um, be free of, be free of complicity with. And it sells the idea that individual anti-racist purity is an attainable or even an important goal. And so it's the very illusion of the attainability of non-contradiction um, that recuperates the underlying contradiction exposed in the moment of racial confusion for the restitution of American exceptionalism. So really, it shouldn't be that surprising that in the summer of 2020 and throughout this year, this kind of genre of literature that I'm referring to became so popular um, because they so kind of clearly laid bare and so literalized these racialized inequities that structure um, life in the U.S., racialized life in the U.S. So in this moment of intense confusion, these reading lists, these books held out this tenuous promise that, you know, um, one could learn how to not be racist and that meaning could be stored. The problem that we we're all seeing could be settled in these very tangible ways. But again, if there's anything that the excruciating last eight minutes and 46 seconds of 
George Floyd's life should have um, made really clear to all of us. It's that as Sadia Hartman puts it, anti-Black terror, quote, resides in the limits of the socially tolerable. So we have to question the idea that anti-Blackness can be settled through a series of how-to behavioral or legislative reforms within extant social structures. And I think this um, quote that I put up by Bell Hooks um, really kind of summarizes that, that sentiment that I'm referring to when uh, she says, a woman who attends an unlearning racism workshop and learns to acknowledge that she is racist is no less a threat than one who does not. So though um, this kind of literature of racial liberalism that I've been outlining has largely been oriented towards white audience, audiences, I'm really interested in seeing how these how-to-isms can move through and over-determine certain contemporary sites of Black Asian organizing. Um, so I'm going to start again in that first ethnographic um, section of my um, virtual ethnography um, of these Black Asian solidarity panels that kind of popped up during the pandemic. I'm sure folks, if they didn't participate in one, they, they at least saw one advertised somewhere. Um, and I realized as I was attending these panels kind of very religiously at the beginning of the pandemic, I was kind of seeing several patterns and discurs discursive patterns emerge, you know, consistently throughout all the panels that I was attending. And that really kind of made me reflect and be able to pull out how those patterns, those discursive patterns and kind of strategies um, I had seen emerge in the past decade of, of organizing work that I've been doing. Um, and really my kind of motivation was kind of to, to name these three patterns that I was seeing um, in order to show how consistent they were and how uniformly that they were applied to various kind of sites of multiracial encounter. Um, so these three do dominant logics that I, that I pulled out I call indebted, transactional, and self-reflexive solidarities. Um, and I, as I kind of go through these, I'm not going to go into the ethnographies too deeply. So again, we're gonna we're gonna send out the the actual paper afterwards. Um, I just want folks to be thinking if they can identify these patterns in, in other spaces that they've been in. So just to be really actively listening in that way, um, and maybe we can have a discussion about it later. So. Um, Solidarity rooted in indebtedness names the ways that Asian Americans are deeply um, indebted to Black liberation struggles, historic and present. It often looks like quoting Black theorists, highlighting the origins of certain organizing tactics and Black resistance movements, or paying homage to the ways Asian Americans have benefited from Black struggles. And so that vital sense of indebtedness often leads to a second transactional logic that implies that Asian Americans should you know show up for Black-led protests because we have always needed Black folks and will need Black folks to show up for us in the same way one day. So say, for example, highlighting the important history of how you know, Frederick Douglass was really vocal in denouncing the Chinese Exclusion Act um, or the NAACP's support in attempting to bring Vincent Chin's murderers to justice, kind of historical, um, important historical moments like that. And so then a third self-reflexive logic is probably what folks in this day and age are, are, are seeing the most of. 
And so that self-reflexive logic centers Asian American reckoning with anti-Blackness within ourselves and our communities. Um, it often focuses, focuses on unlearning internalized anti-Black behaviors and ways of thinking, while also acknowledging the ways Asian Americans um, can benefit and be complicit with Black oppression. So think here of the, um, uh, the Asian letters um, for Black lives genre. And so my objective in kind of pulling out these three discursive patterns um, is not to suggest that they're unimportant. They're certainly important. Um, you know, we really need to, they're, they're necessary parts of multiracial struggle. The problem is, though, that I constantly see them over-determining um, the range of discursive and strategic possibilities in contemporary Black Asian solidarity work. And so by over-determination, I mean that kind of mentioning specific um, instances of, of historical Black Asian encounter, um, of reminding people about the importance of showing up for, for one another, of urging others to unlearn their anti-Blackness becomes part of a, a predictable solidarity repertoire that whereby kind of the organizing simply becomes the performance of the repertoire. So to put it more plainly, you know, you have a very specific conflict in front of you, right? You have a very specific issue that you're trying to deal in a space of multiracial struggle. And these kind of discursive patterns becomes the ways that people uniformly attempt to resolve those problems, but without really attending to the actual problem at hand or actually building the relationships or actually navigating the kind of um, contentious terrain that's being, um, that's animating that, that site of conflict, right? So it becomes just this fallback mechanism um, that people go to when they are, you know, trying to navigate the site of conflict. Um, so, you know, again, while all of this covers important ground, it kind of puts brackets around the beginning and end of the conversation so that you already kind of know how it's going to end before it even begins. So, um, I, I give a few examples of this in the paper, but I'm just going to give two here. So in one instance, at the beginning of the pandemic, the National Asian American um, Pacific Islander Mental Health Association, they started a, um, a project where they wanted to have Asian Americans submit photographs of kind of their experience, like things that were emblematic of their experiences during the pandemic. And so they decided to call this project originally Living While Asian. Um, and so, you know, there was kind of a criticism of this, um, this choice of title for the project because um, a lot of folks felt like it was co-opting a very specific discursive configuration from Black liberation movements, you know, driving while Black. Um, and in this specific moment, you know, we saw Ahmaud Arbery couldn't um, jog while Black, uh, Stanley Cooper couldn't bird while Black, Breonna Taylor couldn't sleep while Black, right? So there was this kind of idea of, you know, it's important to draw that we're naming and drawing attention to the violences that Asian Americans are facing, but, and this is what was animating the criticisms, we don't need to do it by, by drawing false equivalences between these two very different processes of racialization. Um, so the kind of meat of the critique was that, was not that, you know, the kind of meat of the critique was, these are not equivalent forms of racialization. Um, doesn't mean to say that one is worse than the other, but they're not this, of the same nature, right? So 
we can't just kind of be grabbing, you know, using these terms interchangeably. So then, of course, the this organization issues an apology, decides to change the name of the project. But what did they do in their apology? They they relied entirely on an indebtedness and transactional discourse, right? They they say, you know, we did not sufficiently recognize the black community for um, for uh, coming up with this configuration, et cetera. So they they relied on this this kind of predictable pattern but didn't actually attend to the nature of the criticism and question, which of course the question is, is there a way of building solidarity with black and Asian people without drawing, relying on these kind of flimsy equivalences, right? Which is a much more, you know, difficult terrain to work on, right? But the, the, they, they fell back again on this kind of list of discourses that were immediately available them, to them. Another example I want to give was, um, you know, the, the Asian for Black, Asian letters for Black lives genre, just a quick recap for folks, you know, after uh, uh, Chinese American police officer Peter Liang um, killed uh, Akai Gurley in, in New York City, um, a group of young, like, second generation Asian Americans got together to crowdsource a letter that would allow them to develop languages language to talk to their parents and older generations about anti-Blackness in their own communities. And my critique of that is that, you know, through these kind of discourses of self-reflexivity, we need, you know, our older generations, you know, do not have interactions with Black people. They came from different countries, so they're not as well-versed in the history of racial anti-Black oppression in the United States, right? But my critique of that is that it then, for I'm a, I'm a second generation Asian American, it makes it seem like it outsources the entire issue to our parents' generation, as if it were an issue of misunderstanding, as if we didn't also have to do kind of like our own work, right? So these discourses, again, just to summarize, become things that people grab at that allow them to do important work of you know, acknowledging indebtedness and, and transactionality and needing to do that kind of self-reflexive work, but it provides these escape routes, routes around these much kind of thornier issues. And so that's what I, um, I saw continuously popping up. So what I wanna center though um, for the rest of this talk and what I think is, will be most interesting to folks um, is my ethnographic work with Asian American racial and immigrant justice organizers in Southern California to show how these logics that I've named played out in a series of events that prompted the sole two Black interns of a multiracial community organizing school um, in Orange County to leave the 2018 program um, and demand reparations from the program for the harms that they experienced. That they experienced. And again, the point is not to suggest that in indebtedness and transactionality and self-reflexivity aren't important, but to kind of show how over-reliance on these, um, these patterns um, forge shortcuts to a tenuous resolution. So, um, and everything that I'm gonna be using going forward is a pseudonym. This is standard pra practice in anthropology. So the name of the school, the Isang Baksak Organizing School, that's a pseudonym. The name of all the organizers, I'm going to be using our pseudonyms as well. Um, here is a picture of um, the Isang Baksak uh, organizing school participants um, putting on an ice out of Little Saigon rally in summer 2019. And I thought it'd be good to just give you a visual um, 
of these folks. So a little bit more um, information about the organizing school. So Isang Baksa is a racial and immigrant justice community organizing school for local activists of color, so locals in Southern California, who are aged 16 to 24. The school is run by three Korean American, Vietnamese American, and Latinx serving immigrant and racial justice organizations that for the past few years have really been at the forefront of progressive politics in Orange County. I interviewed 20 coordinators and interns from the 2018 and 2019 programs um, and participated directly in the program throughout summer 2019. So I was in New York with you all in summer uh, 2018. But so I had to reconstruct everything that happened out of these really detailed interviews with folks. All of the coordinators were either Asian American, um, majority Korean and Vietnamese American, um, and Latinx, as were all the interns, um, with the exception of the two Black interns in the 2018 cohort. And so many of my interviews with folks revolved around the ways coordinators decided to structure the 2019 program to better center anti-Blackness in their curriculum and political visions in light of the fact that the year prior, the program's two sole Black interns had experienced so much hostility um, that, of course, they left. So um, I just want to give a bit more context. A series of harms committed against the two Black women, who I call Charlotte and JL, culminated in the context of a larger debacle um, involving an anti-Blackness workshop. So after a last minute cancellation of the original facilitator left the organizers of the workshop in a kind of tough place where they had to find someone um, new to replace the, the original facilitator, they basically found someone from the local chapter of AAPIs for Black Lives. Um, so the work, the anti-Blackness workshop was facilitated by an Asian American man who unfortunately thought it appropriate to, to establish his authority on the subject of anti-Blackness by claiming that he had a Black girlfriend. So this gets, so it, things got a little bit worse when a particular individual who I called Tommy and who every single person I interviewed throughout the, um, throughout the entire program identified as the author of, you know, really kind of disturbing anti-Black and misogynistic statements throughout the program. And so when Tommy made these deeply insulting comments regarding the murders of Latasha Harlins and Akai Gurley, um, Latasha Harlins, of course, the 15-year-old um, Black girl who was shot by Soon Jadu, Korean, a Korean storekeeper in Los Angeles in 1991, and Akai Gurley, who I referred to earlier, who was shot by um, Chinese-American police officer Peter Liang. Um, so when Tommy was making these kind of very hurtful comments, um, none of the organizers or interns really intervened to challenge him. Um, but after that, even after that, so Charlotte and Jaya were still invested enough in the program to, the, to write the organizers a letter explaining their hurt um, at having been excluded from the workshop's organizing process and for also having felt abandoned when the organizers kind of didn't say anything in the face of Tommy's comments. And so then the two women even put in the effort of creating a new presentation for their peers, finding a qualified Black facilitator for the work. But during their presentation, which included a 60-page um, manual, <laughs> so they put on this presentation, but it also included a 60-page manual kind of outlining, you know, different aspects of anti-Blackness, et cetera. So during that presentation, some of the interns started to doze off or got up around the room to kind of stretch and keep themselves awake. 
And so that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So faced with that kind of disrespect, the two women left the room in tears and decided to leave the program that day. And so as the organizers and interns attempted to engage in a process of self-reflection and critique after Charlotte and Giles' departure, they invested a lot of their energy in trying to uh, bring Tommy to account to, for his behavior. So that included things, um, but that ultimately kind of culminated in a failed transformative justice project um, where the organizers ended up asking Tommy to leave the program. But Tommy's presence in the group was really damaging in more ways than one, because in manifesting anti-Blackness in such kind of overt ways, which, you know, as we know in today's day and age, well, you know, Trumpism aside, racism isn't always exclusively manifested in such overt, overt, overt ways. Um, but in doing that, Tommy's behaviors and utterances became symbolic of the kinds of actions that needed to be corrected, right? So the how-to of anti-anti-Blackness in this space became to not do and say the things that um, Tommy did and said. And so created this atmosphere where managing individual behavior kind of became the beginning and the end of the work. So on the first day of the 2019 program, coordinators, um, so this is fa uh, fast forward one summer. So we're in, the, we're in the, the next year where coordinators have really done a lot of work to try to make sure that they don't fall into kind of the same patterns in the, in the, in the next summer. So on the first day of the 2019 program, coordinators made it a priority to let interns know that they would quote, not tolerate any anti-Blackness anti in this space. And as the summer progressed, they reminded interns to not appropriate um, African-American vernacular or use the N-word or erase Black narratives from myriad social issues. And then they also created opportunities kind of in the self-reflexive register to, for interns to reflect on their own anti-Blackness in the form of fishbowls. So fishbowls are a kind of a common uh, community organizing or kind of healing space tool where they're basically uh, two co-centric circles where you have a larger group of people on the, on the outer circle and then a smaller group on the inner circle um, where the inner circle is given a prompt about a difficult topic and they are kind of told to have a really raw conversation about it while the outer circle stays quiet, um, just respecting the space and taking notes and then folks kind of switch out of the outer circle and the inner circle. So on this particular day in this fishbowl, participants um, were told to admit to the ways that they perpetuate anti-Blackness in their daily lives. So after this, Rebecca, who was one of the organizers, um, was kind of really doubting whether or not this was an effective exercise. So she questioned the assumed link between solidarity and what she characterized as false displays of atonement that often came from these sorts of activities. I put um, her quotation up on the screen here. She says, looking back now, it wasn't so much a productive conversation where it was like, hey, we acknowledge anti-Blackness and these are the ways I've acted on it. For me, it's like, how do we shift the way we talk about it away from like pointing fingers and being like, hey, you better not be anti-Black. And then Shannon, another organizer, um, also questioned the efficacy of what they described as this kind of public shaming strategy. She said it led interns to construct these teleological narratives that followed, in her words, a, I used to be anti-Black because I used to say the N-word when it came up in songs, but now I don't, so I'm good, kind of logic. 
And so given that the anti-Blackness workshop was really the um, tipping point in the, in the 2018 program the summer before, the organizers were super deliberate in designing the 2019 workshop. Um, they invited Dr. Nina, a Black African-American studies professor at a nearby uh, Orange County University, to do a day-long training. Um, but the coordinators fear that the interns would say or do something in, um, would say or do something offensive um, to Dr. Nina was so intense that they decided to do a pre-training to the training. So on the day of the workshop, we met half an hour before Dr. Nina's arrival to kind of go over ground rules. And the coordinators were, were visibly anxious, um, kind of sternly announcing to the group, if any of y'all fall asleep, I swear to God, I'll kick you out. Another person kind of following up and saying, don't be saying weird shit people. And so as Dr. Nina went through the training, um, the intern, and I'm sorry, I put one of my, um, my, my uh, worksheets from that workshop there so you could see kind of the activities that we were doing in the context of that workshop. So as Dr. Nina went through the training, the interns who were really an otherwise outspoken and, and really funny group remained mostly silent. They, you know, I had grown accustomed to this really fearless and deeply engaged group of young people. So I was really kind of surprised by their level of timidity um, in engaging in this workshop. And so instead of asking questions about the content of the presentation or, um, you know, trying to really get into the meat of what, of what Dr. Nina was presenting to us, almost everyone kind of stuck to the safer but irrelevant inquiry, you know, uh, queries to her. So things like, what made you want to become a professor? Or can you share some poetry with us? So, so things that were lovely to discuss, but really had nothing to do with, with, the, with the subject at hand. But also the interns' comments um, and shyness made me reflect on my own behavior during the work workshop. And I realized that I was doing a lot of the same kind of thing. So, you know, for fear of appearing disrespectful, I had been too afraid to check my phone to make sure everything was okay with my in-laws um, who had just come in from Argentina two days earlier and with whom I had left my, who was, what was then my five-month-old son. This is my first time leaving my son with someone else. <laughs> and so I'm too afraid to check my phone to see how he's doing. Um, I was also anxious about needing to leave the workshop to go pump breast milk um, because I didn't want to be perceived as being rude. Um, but in my kind of anxious worry about not being able to know how my son was doing and in my physical discomfort of needing to pump, I missed what Dr. Nina was saying entirely. So I just wanted to include that to show that I'm also not exempt from these logics. I don't pretend to be above them. So again, I, I want to name that in no way do I mean to suggest that changing behavior and holding people accountable to interpersonal relationships formed within social justice structures is unimportant. Um, the problem that the coordinators ran into, however, was that in an environment that focused so heavily on anti-Blackness as a question of individual behavior correction, it actually shut off potential opportunities for developing the wells of trust that um, you know, I, I put up a, a picture here of, of the Third World Women's Alliance that Black and radical women of color organizers have always argued are necessary preconditions to radical accountability. So getting rid of Tommy or ridding the room of anti-Black behaviors marked the anti-Blackness as being settled, right? They, the organizers did the repertoire of what they were supposed to do, but they still came up short. So to draw on this legacy of, of you know, third world women, um, in an April online panel entitled Asian Black Solidarity in the Time of COVID-19, to bring it whole circle back to the panels, 
Abolitionist Bay Area um, organizer, Dr. Wani Khan, uh, um, Connie One, who is also the director of AAPI Women Lead, stated the following. She said, racial solidarity work is not about us getting along. That needs to be destroyed. It's about us being in struggle with each other, if and how we're going to relate and be held accountable to each other. I want us to toss out the idea that solidarity means that you and I are just going to be cool. I need to respect you enough to struggle with you. And I hope that you respect me enough to struggle with me. Freedom may not be a friendly struggle. In fact, it will probably be the opposite of it. So with that quotation, one is drawing on a long lineage of black and white radical women of color feminists who have always told us that coalition is not supposed to look or feel good. Um, that anger is useful, as Audre Lorde puts it. And also as Bernice Johnson Reagan um, argued, she said, I feel as if I'm gonna keel over any minute and die. That's often what it feels like when you're really doing coalition work. Most of the time you feel threatened to the core. And if you don't, you're not really doing any coalescing. So by way of conclusion, you know, I ended all of my interviews with the Isang Baksak organizers with the same question, um, which was what does API Latinx uh, Black solidarity look like to you? And I would save this question for last because it invariably, it invariably made both me and the organizers uncomfortable because it seemed like, you know, they in their capacity as organizers and me in my capacity as a former organizer and academic, you know, scholar of racialization and activism, that one of us was supposed to have a right answer to that question. Um, and I think the tension emerged from this like desperate uh, desire from both sides to believe that the other one, either one of us knew something, the other one did it, right? And so we were both looking for a how-to, but we didn't uh, know how to, and we don't know how to. So what do we do with that? What I wanna kind of, as a, as a final thought, I wanna say that how-to anti-racism operates with a, within a register of reformist inquiry. It asks, how can we do a bit better within structures that we know aren't working? Because as anthropologist Savannah Shange notes, quote, the space of abolitionist inquiry lies in the ellipses and the question marks, the pause, the adagio, the doubt antecedent to the formation of our questions, end quote. So abolition, abolition is the refusal of the how-to. It refuses the impulse to quickly resolve dissonance into this kind of feel-good major chord of progress. And the how-to-isms of Black Asian coalition anti-racisms I've identified here do important groundwork. We definitely need to name our indebtedness, our you know, accountability, our, our uh, examine ourselves through self-reflexivity, but we also need to venture out into the keeling and dying uh, what Reagan called the keeling over and dying space of coalition. Because coalition like abolition is in Dylan Rodriguez's words, not an outcome. The safety of the outcome that how-toism promises distracts from the need to attend to returning to Rodriguez's words, the everyday practice and collective labors of freedom that is abolition and coalition. So how can we refuse the how-to imperative to resolve what might be the irresolvable? and nonetheless continue on in an abolitionist register, one that has no roadmap, but urges us to trudge on as if we knew what the answers were. So I will stop it there and I will love to engage in a conversation with you all.
one of the items that you mentioned earlier on in your presentation was uh, Akai Gurley and Officer Peter Liang. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a documentary available on PBS Independent Lens, uh, Down a Dark Stairwell. It premiered in uh, April of last month, uh, two months ago. Uh, that's available online to watch. So if folks uh, aren't too familiar with that particular um, uh, subject matter, please uh, take a look. Uh, what other um, project are you working on now, uh, postdoc? Yeah, so um, this is, so this article is actually one chapter of my dissertation that I'm now turning into a book manuscript. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned that Peter Liang documentary. I, um, I have not seen it, but I've heard a podcast about it and I'm very excited to see it because, and, and I'm getting to what the, the larger project is about, because I think it's getting to this really difficult affective place, um, especially, you know, between our generations, right, of, you know, is it possible to understand why, you know, but like, I have conversations with my mother, who's, who's from South Korea, um, you know, is it possible for me to hold the kind of very difficult, hold a space for, for the affects that she might feel, especially now with all of these um, attacks um, against Asian Americans, specifically in New York City, they live in Spanish Harlem, um, while also recognizing that there are structural issues with, um, that are animating the killing of black people, right? So how do I hold a space to deal with, you know, my mom, for example, with her, with her, you know, worries about moving around New York City, et cetera, but also kind of attend to these bigger questions, right? So as again, as ethnographers, we have the the um the advantage of being able to really get into what people are feeling and what they're thinking, et cetera. So the larger pocket, um, the larger project is really trying to get into those kind of difficult spaces. Like, how do we develop language to talk about this in ways that neither that don't dismiss? I, I don't want to two sides it, but like, but the, that are see that where where people are seen as three dimensional human beings. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, I do encourage you to watch this documentary. When yeah, you, I'm, uh, I'm excited about after graduation. <laughs> So uh, we have a question from Elizabeth. Uh, she says the diversity of uh, last year's police brutality marches saw the first time a large number of APAs, uh, example of transactional solidarity. Uh, what's the next step you feel is not taking place because of the focus on showing mutual support? Yeah. So I'm I'm happy that folks are kind of like incorporating the language um, that I've tried to use to identify these these patterns. Um, I. So I, I want to say that it's not the problem isn't that it's great that actually APAs are, are showing up for, for Black Lives Matter protests, right? Because we need to see how the entire carceral system is not only harming Black communities, but our communities as well, right? Whether that be through deportation, et cetera. But what I was really, what I really love to see is that, you know, I think so. So uh, uh, someone posed this to me in, in a in a conference a few weeks ago. So where are these spaces of kind of transform transformational work taking place? Um, 
And so for me, that's really in the building alternative spaces, the mutual aid spaces, right? The um, so so you know during the the uprisings after after George Floyd's murder, there was a lot of concentration on these kind of spectacular moments of burning cop cars and like burning uh, uh, um, police buildings, et cetera, right? But what were people also doing? They were also creating mutual aid networks. They were taking over a hotel and turning it into a collectively run shelter for un unhoused people in Minneapolis. They were creating other, these parallel structures, right? Where Because people often think when we say abolition, when we say abolish the police, when we say abolish ICE, they think that what we're saying is, let's get rid of police tomorrow, right? But abolition, abolition in the words of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, is mostly a, a project of building life-affirming institutions, right? So where I really see these kind of real struggle together and real just like, look, we do not need to draw equivalences between our forms of racialization. We do not need to have, you know, we do not need to skirt around conflict has been in these spaces of building these alternatives, these alternatives to policing, alternatives to, um, you know, individualized ideas about, you know, what is well-being, et cetera, into communal forms of care. So that's where I really see this awesome um, kind of uh, transgressive work happening. Do you have any suggestions on how we might integrate some of these how-tos into the classroom? Well, so what I would actually argue is is to so, so can you what kind of classroom? Oh no, uh, uh, students, in order for them to learn these lessons earlier on, right now, because um, in New York City, for example, there's no. Uh, sort of uh, Asian American studies or history lessons, yeah. right, in, in the curriculum right now, right? Yeah. There's uh, elected officials who have introduced it into legislation um, mm -hmm. trying to get that done. So how, how do we make sure that uh, student the student body learns these, you know, anti-racisms earlier yeah, I mean, in their education? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, this is why we need ethnic studies, right? Because mm -hmm. When we start to think about anti-racism as a question of individual behavior management, which is kind of what a lot of the popular discourse around anti-racism is today, we are really straying far from the legacy of Black Asian solidarity building, not just in the U.S., but in, you know, what is what was called the third world, right? And so what were those projects about? Those were anti-capitalist anti-imperialist, um, anti-racist projects that weren't about seeking inclusion into extant institutions, but were really about challenging these larger structures, right? So I think folks, A, need to learn not just about the history. I mean, there are certain histories that people learn that are important, but it's, it's kind of revealing which histories people talk about and which ones they don't, right? So, um, and, and this is something that um, scholar Dylan Rodriguez told me, like, so we'll hear about the kind of um, coalitions that came together after Vincent Chin's murder. We'll hear, you know, about how Yuri Kochiyama was holding Malcolm X's head um, as, he, as he was shot and died, right? 
but there are certain things, there are certain other histories, but like, what about the, what was the actual nature of Yuri Kochiyama's and, and Malcolm X's relationship, right? This was a, a, this was a revolutionary project. This wasn't about more representation. This wasn't about, you know, uh, uh, these kind of like more liberal ideas of what justice is. This was actually about challenging capitalism and challenging the colonization of Asia and Africa um, and, you know, the so-called third world, right? This is about, you know, he, the example he likes to use is that a lot of people don't talk about um, the history of David Fagan, who was a Black soldier um, in the army that was occupying the Philippines, who actually led a group of soldiers to defect from the U.S. Army when they were in the Philippines and then fought for Filipino, the Philippine Army, right? A very specifically direct threat to the project of U.S. imperialism. Um, so folks need to learn those histories and learn that the defund, you know, these, I'm, I'm using the language of today's demands because that's, I think, what, it, what resonates most, but how defund the police and abolish ICE, you know, hashtag are direct extensions of these projects and integral to these projects. Um, and to, to see what's happening in Palestine and to see what's happening, um, you know, to see what's happening in the US at the border and to see what's happening in our cities with policing as all intimately connected because that's how, that is what the, the essence of Black Asian solidarity was. Um, so I think just like teaching those histories and teaching how they're intimately connected to the demands of today. That's what I like to do in my classes, at least, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, uh, Vincent Chin, uh, Malcolm X, and Yuri Kochiyama, their birthdays were actually this past week. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Elizabeth, who asked you the question earlier, uh, just mentioned, uh, in a way, uh, she thinks you are saying to focus on a specific project to get reforms, not to show mutual support. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I want to qualify what I'm trying to say. So it depends on how you characterize mutual support. So one of the examples that I give of one of the online panels is something um, in the article I'll, I'll mention here, and because I also see it coming up um, in the context of discussions about this um, anti-Asian hate crimes bill that passed yesterday, right? So in one of the um, examples I give of one of the online panels, um, it was an organization that you know, they were talking about what can Asians do in, in Black Lives Matter. So in one breath, the panelists are saying, you know, we haven't been great about showing up for our Black and Latinx uh, communities. We need to do better. We need to show up for them, right? And then in the next breath are making specific calls to further policing, um, to further... Um, folks, instead of trying to think about what are kind of alternatives to the policing that is, again, not just of Black communities, but directly connected to, to the deportation of Southeast Asians, the imperial projects in Korea and Vietnam and the Philippines and Okinawa, et cetera. Um, so they're, 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 their idea of saying mutual support is like, okay, I'm going to show up to this rally, right? But in the next breath, they're advocating for things that are at, would actually make the lives of the people of the people of that rally worse, right? That would actually make it worse for Black people. That would actually make it worse for Southeast Asians. That would make it worse for a lot for a lot of people, right? 
So we have to qualify what we mean by mutual support. And so the reason I, I bring that up is that like, I saw this um, tweet that I really liked by Anup Prasad, who's, who's an attorney with, um, I think the ACLU, North County. He was like, I hope those same folks who were celebrating Yuri Kochiyama and, and, and uh, Malcolm X's birthday yesterday are not celebrating the, the Hate Crimes Act today because that's in a direct opposition to their legacy because the Hate Crimes Act is all it's doing is it's in further embolden emboldening the carceral state, right? It's further emboldening these systems that are um, making life unlivable. Um, so like for, for a very concrete example, the day of the Atlanta massacre, the day before, the Biden administration authorized a plane deporting 33 um, Vietnamese American refugees, who came, folks who came over as refugees, who for whatever reason or another did not naturalize their status. These were folks who got caught up in the carceral system. Um, by the way, you know, like responding to a lot of the trauma that had happened during the war, um, responding to the communities that they were resettled into. Um, so one person named Tian Fem, who was one of the deportees, he's someone who, Who's, who was um, tortured in re-education camps after the fall of Saigon because um, his father had fought alongside the U.S. Army. Um, so the Viet Cong put his family in re-education camps and tortured them, then moved for several years to a refugee camp in Thailand um, and was finally settled in San Jose in a poor community in San Jose, California, where at age 17, he got into a fight at school. And because he had a knife on him at the time. He was charged as an adult for attempted murder and spent 20 years in jail. So when he was released, um, when he was released, he was immediately handed over to ICE custody because he never became, he didn't have a chance to become a full citizen, right? And so he's deported on this plane of 33 people the day before the Atlanta massacre. And you know, the Biden administration is talking about um, we have to stop anti-Asian violence. We need to stop anti-Asian hate. But what do we what do we actually mean by that, right? Like, um, and yeah, I just uh, Elizabeth is being a great interlocutor. Yes, yeah, she did uh, write out an uh, excellent example of how increasing policing to respond to anti-Asian violence would make the lives of uh, Black and Latino communities. But what do you propose should be the immediate deterrent to crimes versus long-term deterrent, uh, mm -hmm. i.e., are you saying community groups uh, policing their streets versus the police? Yeah. Then it puts the responsibility on the community. Mm -hmm. uh, she agrees that the long-term focus deals with the increased resources to the community, but what's the solution for the short-term deterrent? Right. So I guess maybe the anti-hate crimes bill is just a short-term de you know, deterrent right now. But, I, you know, it... it... <laughs> I don't know how many of, look, like I, I recognize that as a person who presents as white, I, I don't have the same kind of fear walking around New York City that my, my mother fears, et cetera. So I, th I feel like sometimes when I, when I voice these critiques, it can, it can sound a little bit um, out of touch, but this is this is like a, the classic question that abolitionists thinkers think all the time, and this is why I um, talk in the end of the of the talk about kind of the space of abolitionist inquiry, right? It's this space of inquiry that doesn't really um, respond to the kinds of like linear progress that we think of, right? 
So no one is saying we need to get rid of the police tomorrow. That's not an abolitionist project, right? That's no one is saying that, you know, tomorrow we're not going to, we're just not going to have a police department, right? And if these elderly women who get attacked on the street, like they're out of luck, like that's not, that's not what anybody is saying, right? I would question to what extent, so what, what, it, what is a hate crime statute, right? A hate crime statute basically adds more time onto someone's sentence um, or um, it, ex- and, and what this, this hate crime bill that passed yesterday does is it extends a sentence. It extends the kind of crimes that are um, available, that are, that are um, eligible as hate crimes, right? Um, and I think uh, Judy Chu's um, separate bill would um, have, would well, so, and also it, it better streamlines communication between different levels of federal enforcement. It provides more training to police officers, et cetera. But like what this year of reckoning should have showed us is that if we spend more money, we put more money into training, we put more money and we, we, kind of keep metastasizing this carceral system. It hasn't been doing anything. And I don't know to what extent adding a few years onto someone's sentence is going to deter them from doing this, right? A lot of these people who are are these like random attacks are people dealing with mental illness. They are, you know, so it's not to say that these attacks are justified or that there's no blame or that I'm not, or that we shouldn't be worried, right? What I'm saying is that the ways that we have been trained to think about what is a solution to the problem is the problem itself, right? So again, it's not a question of short-term versus, versus long-term. If what the short-term, like, and, and there's this, you know, distinction in like kind of abolitionist organizing that we talk about between reforms and non-reformist reform. A non-reformist reform is one that doesn't simply add, continue to add power to the carceral system, right? What these bills are doing are adding power to the carceral system because it's streamlined. It's not only making people put B in jail for longer, but it's giving, it's literally pumping it more with financial support and also um, streamlining the mechanisms they can use to um, uh, communicate with each other. So it's a really difficult space to be in because we're supposed to think linearly. We're supposed to think in terms of these kind of immediately attainable goals. Um, But I feel like the last, you know, at least the last year has shown us that we need, we need to be imaginative. Elizabeth says she agrees uh, about increasing the incarceration state is not the solution, but people need concrete ideas to deal with the immediate issue. Uh, what are some examples to demonstrate that uh, imagination in the short term? Yeah, sure. So like the the housing collective that I talked about in Minneapolis that rose up, right? So this was a space that people could go to um, who were unhoused or who were dealing with other forms of economic, because we, we, we can't just think about the, so this is the problem, right? We can't just think about the carceral system as this isolated thing of just prisons and ICE, et cetera, right? We have to think about it about it as all intertwined. So we can't just do, there's not gonna be one complete shift. So, but if you want concrete things, mutual aid networks, um, housing collectives, um, uh, uh, what is it called? Um, harm reduction programs, um, 
ideas about just general ways of, of communal living and repair that would address the actual reasons that people commit crimes. And when they do commit crimes, things that, you know, really get to the, to the actual root of the issue rather than simply putting them in jail for longer. And so, you know, if you look on uh, Dean Spade's website, they have very concrete programs and examples of programs that people put together of child collectives, child care collectives, mutual aid networks, et cetera, um, community um, response networks where, you know, you already know who you're going to call. And I, I'm in one of these. You already know who you're going to call instead of 911 when you're dealing with a situation. Uh, just so you know, uh, Elizabeth has been asking questions. Uh, she's a past president of OCA New York. Uh, she's oh, also great. an attorney and uh, I think adjunct faculty at NYU. And she also helps organize a uh, anti-hate art project that OCA has been sponsoring for the past a decade so far. Awesome. Um, and also she was involved with uh, formative justice of uh, two girls who actually attacked an Asian female up in the Bronx. And, um, you know, uh, that particular story, uh, they uh, hit the Asian woman on the mm -hmm. bus uh, with an umbrella. And afterwards, they wow. were caught. And then instead of um, the, the victim said that the, it would be better off if they learned something rather than putting them, you know, into this, you know, cycle that you discussed. Earlier. Yeah. Oh, that is amazing. And uh, uh, Elizabeth, I'd, I'd love to hear about that experience. Yeah. So transformative justice work, the, um, uh, the organizer Mia Mingus um, has a lot of amazing materials that we've worked with in my group about creating your, your, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for that, for that background about creating your pod, like you call your transformative justice pod. So who are the people who you call when you are harmed and who are the people who are, uh, hold you accountable when you cause harm, right? So, you know, none of these things are going to re replace the police in one day, right? Like probably not in our lifetimes either, right? But there, we have to kind of get out of thinking that that's going to be possible or that's what we should even want, right? It's just like a whole scale switching. So I'm so happy to hear that these transformative justice processes are working in those spaces. Yeah. So basically those two girls, did, they participated in the uh, I Hate Art Project and they learned a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess I could connect you together with Miss Elizabeth afterwards. Uh, when she I would, I would love that. Uh, we have a, a Becky who, who says that uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that many solidarity spaces were often created under larger overarching themes of anti-capitalism. However, this directly clashes with the alluring lie of the American dream, uh, the obsession of Instagram consumerism and the model minority myth that uh, many generations, including uh, her parents, uh, subscribe to. Uh, how do you think this affects solidarity and advocacy work today? or are generations even more reflective on issues of capitalism and wealth gap uh, more than ever? Yeah. That's a really, that's a really, really great, great question. I often, um, so I'm like putting my mom on blast. <laughs> um, you know, my mom migrated by herself and she is very invested in, in this idea of the American dream and that anyone you know, who comes to the U.S. can make it if, if they just try hard enough. Um, 
I think it depends again on, you know, who we're talking about. The model minority myth, as we know, is a myth. That's why we call it a myth, right? Um, and I think the processes of the last year, but, you know, for the, you know, I was born in 1988, right? So I lived through, you know, um, uh, 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis, um, Trumpism, and now COVID-19. And so it's really hard to kind of, you know, student debt, et cetera. Like, you know, it's really kind of hard to have faith in the American dream when our experiences are so different from our parents' experiences, right? Like where we've, um, and I think that I've seen bigger attention, especially after 2008 to kind of these, anti-capitalist and anti-imperial critiques. But so the, the thing I want to, there's this great quotation by Robin Kelly, where he's like, who's, a, who's an African-American, uh, a historian of, of African-American studies, who he says that the way that kind of racial liberalism works, so mo the model minority myth is kind of a, a racial liberalism uh, trope par excellence, right? It's, it's the idea that anyone in the U.S. can make it, right? And so and the way, the reason that this is so dangerous is because it makes it seem like maneuvers, it makes, okay, it makes it seem like maneuvers within this system of racial, hegemon, of racial hegemony are actually legitimate acts of resistance against it, but they're actually just strengthening that strengthening the illusion of racial liberalism. Okay, so let, we have Kamala Harris as, um, let me let me bring that down to earth a little bit. So we have Kamala Harris as the first, you know, Black and first South Asian and first woman president, right? So we can look at that, or even Obama, right? We can look at that and say, look, look how, how we even have a Black president. Now we have a Black uh, and South Asian female president, right? How could we possibly be a racist country, right? But what are Kamala, like, what are Kamala Harris's and what are Obama's like actual investments, right? Um, more people are deported under Obama than any other president. Um, we know that Kamala has a very problematic history of um, of complicity with with the carceral state, et cetera. When you have when you're living in a country that has this idea that it's exceptional in terms of its you know, inclusion, inclusionary rhetoric, right? You can't really point to a lot of laws that say like, oh, that is so blatantly exclusionary, right? Even the ways that we can, this is using Robin Kelly's words, even the ways that we can imagine freedom aren't free, right? So it creates this, you know, when you get one, you know, Asian American who has made it, right? Or you, you get one person represented in this way. It confirms the entire narrative of racial liberalism, right? So that's why it makes it so hard to kind of get outside of that, of that framework, right? It, it, it's really hard to imagine life outside of that. And that's what I think is in this like post-1965, like racial liberal hegemony, makes it so hard to do this kind of more radical transformative organizing work because we're constantly fighting against a, a system of, 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 of uh, racial oppression that is by design making it invisible to us. Sorry, I just wanted to add like, we can't really fault our parents 
or are even, I don't want to, again, I, I don't really like this pattern of like blaming things on our parents' generation, right? We, we have to be generous with people who are invested in this idea of the American dream because well, A, for some people it worked out and B, like we're being told all the time that it exists. So we have to, like, it's, it's not even just like liberation in the sense of, you know, geopolitical or like economic or whatever. It's like even in our heads, like the cops are in our heads. That's um, one way that people put it. Um, so yes, I mean, it's hard. Uh, Elizabeth also asks, uh, how do you position food banks by Asian groups in Black and Latino yeah. spaces? Um, I, I don't know if you're like referring to a specific project, but um, I guess I, I guess my question would be, what is what is the broader project of that group? So again, I want to refer folks to Dean Spade, um, uh, the uh, yeah, yeah, mutual aid brigade, uh, just uh, Google Dean Spade mutual aid. So they talk about how mutual aid is solidarity, not charity, right? So is it following falling into this model where um, kind of folks are just coming into communities and handing out food, but not really using those opportunities to build power with folks? Are they making, are they putting restrictions on who has access to those goods in terms of like, you know, do they have to be sober? Do they have to be whatever, you know, these things, these kind of barriers that typical um, kind of uh, charity, charity models that people work within? Um, so I guess it would just depend on what the intention and what the actual practices of that group are. Um, there's one in LA that I forgot. Oh my goodness. I'll try to send it out to people. It's a really great group that does this kind of, you know, immediate uh, material survivability accompanied by um, power building and popular education and organizing. Uh, she says that the one that she's referring to, in, this, this one's in New York City, uh, UA3, an Asian American mm. organization, is doing uh, this right now uh, and desires to improve relations, but not yet focused on addressing on reform. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because you have to establish relationships first, right? It's kind of a chicken or the egg argument. Um, you know, it's hard to just parachute in, but I'm sure, you know, as, as folks kind of build relationships and build trust in the, in the communities that they're working in, um, hopefully that those can be spaces of, of kind of collective work. I'm familiar with this particular food bank. Yeah. So basically it's uh, Asian run and led. Uh, they're located in the Lower East Side in terms of where their pantry is. And uh, a majority of their clients are basically um, Asian American seniors. And there's only just a few uh, Latino or Black uh, clients. And the, the only barrier to signing up is basically uh, being able, uh, having a phone to be able to receive the text message or sort of uh, the notification on the app great. that they have available. So yeah. that's it. That sounds really great. Um, yeah. And just as long as, you know, the word is getting out to folks, um, it, you know, regardless of, of yeah, that's, not, I mean, that sounds like great work. Yeah, I'd love to know more about it when the next time I'm in New York. Okay. Um, yeah, correct. Uh, Elizabeth says, correct. So based on your logic, what she agrees is if this opportunity will build on collective work to address system reforms. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know if people, you, sorry, you said the Lower East Side? Correct. It's uh, okay. over on Grand Street and Essex. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are folks 
within Black and Latino communities maybe doing work to organize folks there? Um, I don't know specifically, um, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with providing people material survival in a system, in a current configuration where survivability is, is tenuous at best. Um, but, you know, the history of, of kind of charitable organizations hasn't always been best, the best in, in the United States, right? So that's why Dean Spade really set, it urges this, you know, solidarity and not charity and is very specific in there. They have a new book out called Mutual Aid. Um, that's basically a primer on mutual aid that really makes this distinction way more clearly than I can. Yeah, the difference between solidarity and charity. Like, our, I think the way that they put it is really helpful. It's like, what, yes, I mean, handing out food is super important, super, super, super important. Um, but are you also doing work to address the reason that those people are food precarious in the first, first place, right? Like, are you also doing political work to change those structures that are making it so that those people have to live, you know, without access to food? Uh, it, it should just be noted that this particular uh, food pantry, food bank um, came about during the pandemic. So Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, I think so many mutual aid organizations propped up during the pandemic and it's so it's it's this is what our natural response is when we come to realize that the state is not there for us right this is what people's response is to start caring for each other collectively so it's like that's our natural inclination and i think the pandemic has made that really clear like we mutual aid wasn't in the public discourse like it was confined to like some the obscure like abolitionist spaces, but now everyone knows what mutual aid means, right? So it's like, when we are in crisis, we turn to each other for help. We turn to co collective forms of care. Um, and so why don't we just try to make that the, you know, like the central operating principle of, of our lives? Yeah. And I wanna thank uh, Dr. Rubio very much uh, for her enlightening presentation for attendees seeking educational resources to teach uh, Asian American history and uh, anti-racism in the classroom or your community. The Institute also has available on our website extensive list of resources under publications, CUNY forum, uh, learning resources under the section of Corona Conversations. And uh, I want to thank uh, everyone for attending tonight's uh, talk. Stay healthy, get vaccinated, uh, be an upstander <laughs> if you see a fellow person in need. We'll be sending out uh, Dr. Rubio's full article to the attendees after this talk. And good night and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for being here.